Salam, guys. I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Sufyan, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Hope you're well. Ibrahim, is it definitely live on the YouTube channel? It should be live on the YouTube channel. I, I only channel. ask because uh, I want the YouTube channel loaded up at the same time and it's not. Oh, it I is know. now. Okay. We, we are live now. Fantastic. <laughs> I get very nervous about this whole thing myself, to be honest, because one time, the early days, we were broadcasting for about 15 minutes. Me and Mosin were giving pearls of wisdom. Like, it was all firing out. And then we realized that no one was watching. In that one, it was quite popular. It was like 100 people waiting. They were just asking. It's not really making sense to us what's going on. And Mohsin kept on thinking that what you were saying wasn't making sense. <laughs> but it was literally that they couldn't see him. So Alhamdulillah. Guys, Jazakallah khair for joining this video. This is one that I've really looked forward to myself. This is a chance that, inshallah, that I think a lot of us can benefit from getting your insights, Sufyan. And I know some of your portfolio companies, some of the companies that you've invested in, at least one or two of those founders have got in touch and said, I'm really looking forward to this, to hear about your background. So I think it'll be really helpful. For people who don't know Sufyan, he's the founder of MEND, Muslim Engagement and Development. It's an Islamophobia awareness and to fight Islamophobia NGO. But before that, Sufyan was, mashallah, a very, very successful businessman who created multiple businesses that have, alhamdulillah, turned over multi-millions of pounds. So very, very successful, influential, and I think someone we can learn from as a businessman. And I see you as a mentor, Sofian. So with that, let's dive in. Do you want to talk to us about your childhood? I've not really heard much about your childhood and how that shaped the rest of your life. Yeah, well, I'd also like to welcome everybody listening today and uh, thank Islamic Finance Guru for taking the time to do this interview. I know you guys have been chasing on this one for a while, (laughs) and I can only apologize it's been a very busy couple of years, as you know all too well. But real pleasure to be here and real pleasure to be mentoring some of you guys. Early childhood, I suspect, is very similar to many young Asians, many young Muslims in this country. Our parents came here in the 60s, 70s, some in the 80s, and it was really tough and rough. We came here for one reason, one reason only, and that was a better life. And I honestly believe we're hugely indebted to our parents and, in my case, also particularly from a work perspective, my dad, who for next to nothing was busy working in mills and with the kind of tiny pennies he earned, ensuring we got an education. And on the back of the education we got, that we were able to make a better living for ourselves than, say, the fields in Africa or in India or something along those sorts of lines. So it was very modest, very humble. We lived in a council house. I even remember the day we finally moved out of the council house into something far better as certainly one of the happier days of my mom's life and so on. There are some memories, though. I remember Muhammad Ali, after one of his famous fights, he went out into the streets of Africa and he said to the African people that poverty has a dignity which wealth very rarely possesses. 
And it was really interesting because there's certain memories you have from when you were poor, living in those back streets, the relationships that we forged with our neighbors, the games we played in cobbled streets, yeah? All things that, uh, remember Gully Danda, man, a lot of people watching will know Gully Danda all too well, right? Yeah. And so on. It's been 30 years, 35 years maybe since I played Gully Danda, I don't know, man. But there are certain fantastic memories from those days and those kind of very humble beginnings. And they form a platform for where you are today. And I think the sacrifices made by people like your parents simply can't be forgotten because you wouldn't be where you are today, bismillah, had it not been for what your parents put themselves through, a ridiculous small amount of money an hour, night shifts for an extra 10, 20%, coming home with 30, 40 quid a week, yet still sending half back to India to assist their own relatives and things along those sorts of lines. I even remember times when I had flappy soles on my shoes because we couldn't afford the next pair of shoes and things like that till the next paycheck for dad came in. So, yeah, alhamdulillah, tawakkal Allah. We can smile and laugh now uh, and, uh, and all a learning experience. And Sufyan, how early was it that you realized that you wanted to be a businessman? Because when someone meets you, you know that you're a businessman. You've got that kind of mixture of a bit of sales, a bit of leadership and a bit of just that kind of, aura around you and i want to know how much of that is natural and how much of that you learned over time it's all a facade bro it's all fake <laughs> <laughs> it's all fake i'm a lot older than this it's just the botox that helps me out and, and, and everything else the reality is when you're living in quote unquote the hood when you're living in terraced houses going through a really difficult upbringing is the reality from lots of different perspectives my father passed away when i was i think like 20 21 Allah give him Jannah. It's a rough time. You grow up very quickly. Sometimes you learn within years what you might have learned in decades, whereas sometimes in decades <laughs> you learn only what you may have learned in years. And you know, when something like that happens to you, you've got a whole lot of siblings and you're in a tough situation, you grow up very quickly. You really, really do. Yeah. So maybe that was the realization that I can't be a bum all my life. I'm going to have to get up <laughs> and, and actually do something with my life. So Perhaps that final year in university made me wake up to the fact that I'm actually going to have to try and do something here, inshallah. And then I'd started investing in the stock market at that point in time, which you're all too familiar with. Then I think when I was in structured employment, when I was working for Deloitte, yeah. I realized that how much money are you really going to make working in structured employment for an employer? Really, the way to make money in life is to have your own kind of enterprise and your own corporation and so on. And I've always believed entrepreneurship and natural entrepreneurial skill is a bit like footballing skill. And what I mean is you have your Wayne Rooney's of this world. You'll have your Pele's, your Maradona's and so on. And I know my friends, some of my friends from Zambia are watching this. And I know some love Pele, some love Maradona, some love Zico. So I'll mention them all. You've got some footballers who are absolute naturals and they don't. Ronaldo, they're, uh, Messi, they don't have to do a huge amount in terms of hard work. They do, but they don't have to do a huge amount to be amazing. And that would be entrepreneurs like your Richard Branson's of this world and so on and so forth. Then there are other people who with enough hard work can be very good as well. And the lesson for all of us is we lie somewhere along that spectrum. None of us are useless, but very, very, very few people are as good as Branson and so on. And dependent upon where you are on that spectrum, often determines how hard you've got to try as far as business, entrepreneurship, natural flair and skill 
is concerned. And it's not just about the gift of the gab. It really isn't. There's so much that goes into business beyond the gift of the gab to make a successful business. So I guess when I was in Deloitte in structured employment, when I thought I feel a bit cocooned here and really not able to express entrepreneurial skills here and so on. It really is interesting, actually. One of the things that I was always struck by, well, I met Bash first, Bashir from 1E, then I met you. I'd heard about you a lot from various people at 1E. And one of the things that always struck me was the trust that you placed, I think both of you, the trust that you kind of place in people to kind of just take this and then crack on with whatever that is. I think that over time, I've kind of come to realize that, of course, that comes with its risks as well, but you win more than you lose. And the wins that you have are normally bigger. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. You know what's interesting? This is the Alex Ferguson philosophy. And you have to forgive me being a Man United fan. I know there'll be Liverpool fans watching this, yeah. And my only sincere hand on heart prayer to you is may God guide you, give you Hidayah. <laughs> right. In this, in this, this holy truth, which is Man United, yeah. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I mean, I mean, Fergie had this philosophy. I mean, <laughs> right. Fergie had this philosophy where he trusted in the youth. There are certain benefits youth brings way above elderly established individuals. And I'll try and very quickly articulate them because I know there's probably lots of questions coming in and we probably want to get through them, inshallah, and so on. But the benefit of youth is it's not already heavily nurtured in a particular way of doing things. In other words, it's a lot easier to teach younger people new lessons, new tricks, and new ways of doing things than it is to teach older people that. Plus, older people quite often come with baggage. They quite often come with commands for big salaries as well. Whereas younger people are much more willing to prove themselves in the business world. So they're quite often willing to do things on bonuses, on lower salaries. And as they are proving themselves for their remuneration to reflect the reality of them proving themselves and so on. The older person quite often, they may have also lots of kids and a lot of family baggage as well, which takes time where the younger one is hungry, has got all the time in the world to prove themselves and so on. Of course, it can go wrong because the older person has learned lessons in life by virtue of the mistakes they've made and wants to avoid making those blunders. You know what they say? That the wise man learns from other people's mistakes. The fool is forced to learn from their own. And I've had to learn from plenty of my own. So that then being the case, there are certainly benefits of being older and wiser too. But if you find a young individual who you think will, inshallah, not make too many errors, then that's the sort of person whom, as long as you nurture properly, and I've tried to do that in all of our various businesses and our NGO organizations and charities and so on, then you are onto an absolute winner because they do a lot of the stuff which you now don't want to do because you've Mm -hmm. done it for years. Plus, they have got limitless amounts of energy to help you explore so many markets. And we see that in our property business ventures. We see that in our private equity investments. And we definitely see that in our philanthropic adventures as well. No, exactly. Like Questions are pouring in. Mohsin saying that we should aspire to be like Gary Neville. In which sense? Aspire to be like Gary Neville? <laughs> I have no hard idea. Oh, very hardworking, <laughs> which he was. Yeah, go on. But before we get into all these questions, I thought I'd just ask you a little bit about your corporate career and what you learned from that. Because I remember when I first met you, and I'm very, very grateful as ever for you agreeing to meet me in the first place, because often we get people coming to us as university students. We realize it's actually quite hard to take the time out to do that. So very grateful for that. And one of the first things that you said to me 
was that you crack on and carry on doing your corporate career for a few years because you learn a lot from that. I just thought I'd ask you what you learned from your corporate career and where that advice came from. You know, it's funny, neither from my degree nor from my early years in larger corporations like PwC, like Deloitte, like corporate investments and so on, did I learn remotely as much as I learned from being in the Islamic society at university. And I'm not even joking. See, what happened is I was thrown in the deep end in the Islamic society university and we were busy organizing camps away where you'd have to go and check a youth hostel and make sure it was fit for purpose. You'd have to put the training session together. You'd have to get speakers there for the weekend. You'd have to financially manage the budget. Then on Friday, I'd be giving the talks and the khutbahs and the lectures at Friday prayer. You then have all the human skills in terms of managing your Islamic society or your FOSIS committee. Actually, if I reflect and I think about it, where did the courage in life really come from? From the point at which my dad passed away and uh, Allah given Jannah. I mean, to really, beyond just some initial structured work with Deloitte, start setting up first ethical, the business, then one tax, then organizations like the Charitable Trust, then MEND, and then all of our private equity stuff and, and blah, blah, blah. Actually, the entire platform for that character building, the entire platform for transformation of that pretty naive, nervous student mentality into someone who was pretty much willing to embrace any challenge the world would throw at me was the time at university, was having to manage crazy budgets with small amounts of income. We used to produce this Ramadan timetable for Salah, which we had to get funded by local businesses. And I'm telling you, it's quite daunting walking into a business on Winslow Road and asking them to give you £200 for an advert or £100, £300. But it teaches you fantastic sales skills. When you're managing your Islamic society committee with people warring against each other and you've got to get them to work together, teaches you huge mediation skills with people. When you stand up for Friday prayer and you've got to do the khutbah in front of two, three hundred people, a few years later, you're at MEND, where you're speaking in front of 4,000 people at conferences in the Excel and so on. So the platform for so many of those time management, public speaking, human mediation, getting up at five in the morning and sleeping at one at night, which I had to do again and again and again in one e because of how busy it was, that all came from Islamic society at University of Manchester. That's why I didn't go to Oxford, bro. I wouldn't have had that training. <laughs> it's, uh, you had quite a uh, feisty Islamic society, weren't you? If I'm not wrong, did you have <laughs> Sheikh Abuisa before he was known as Sheikh Abuisa in yeah, there? I, I certainly did know him before then. And then you had Brother Naweed, who was one hell of a character as well. You had class of 92 back at Man United. In our place, <laughs> case you, you had the, the class of like 98 or whatever you want to call them, yeah? We were a bunch of nutters. Why don't we pick off a few questions and then I want to dive in and hear your story about how you set up. Yeah, I'm happy to what business lessons, don't worry, no, no issues at all. So here's a good one from Mohsin, which is, if entrepreneurship isn't right for someone, how do you think people can still make an impact? There are some professions you get some individuals who will never in a million years, and I'm really glad these live questions are coming in because these are not scripted, as you know. We're just answering these as we're going along. There are some people who were never made for entrepreneurship and structured employment for them where they work nine to five, switch off their computer, half past five, six o'clock, go spend time with their family and kids, and then wake up again the next morning, don't answer any calls from work in the evening. That's the best for them. They are the vast majority of the population, completely non-entrepreneurial types. 
Then you've got yeah. your total opposite end of the spectrum, your James Dysons, your Richard Branson types, your typical entrepreneurs and so on and so forth. To a degree, people like ourselves, we cannot live a structured lifestyle. We're answering emails at 11 o'clock at night, whereas we may be on holiday at a time when other people are working during the day. There's no structure to our lives, let's face it, is the truth of the matter. But there is in the middle an individual who has some entrepreneurial skill, but not a huge amount. So if they were left to build a business in their own right, they probably couldn't. But at the same time, they've got more than just a nine to five in them. And for people like that, I tend to say, go to kind of safe environments, safe jobs, spaces where the government is effectively paying your salary and you're carrying out part of the government service for it in like an extension of the civil service, anatomy, and so on and so forth. So there are some individuals who uh, very much are able to go into professions where you will never earn millions and millions and millions and millions, but it's a guaranteed service the country needs. And you have some entrepreneurial talent, so just go with it, essentially. So that's the sort of space that I would guide individuals like that. Let's take a couple more and then go back to the main questions. So what advice would you have, Asma is asking, what advice would you have for someone graduating this year during this climate? Advice, presumably from a job perspective. I think so, yeah. yeah? It's a really, really tricky, tough time for graduates at the moment from a number of perspectives. One is you've got COVID and a number of key graduate employee organizations like PwC, Deloitte are deferring internships and all sorts of stuff. I've never even heard of that. Companies like Shell are deferring dividends. This stuff is almost unheard of from where we're standing. So it's a really, really tough time from a graduate recruitment perspective. And even a year out is probably not a bad idea had it not been for the travel restrictions. That's even difficult as well is the point. Maybe you let them ease over a few weeks and have a look at that. But yeah, it's definitely a tough time. Add to that the fact that in recent years, we have gone through a huge fintech global financial globalization kind of agenda, whereby they now say most jobs that are going to be around in 2030 haven't even been created yet. Something like 60, 70, 80% of the jobs that are going to be around 10, 15 years from now haven't even been created. If I was a graduate graduating, here's what I would do. I would try and spend about three years, four years at a graduate employer employees like Glaxo, employees like PwC, and and places like this. I try and get into a good three, four, a year graduate scheme, whether that's a management course or degree that I'm able to do or whatever. But then if I've got entrepreneurial nows, I would try my level best to go into the industries that are really growing. And that's a whole host of the technology ones, medical technology, digital commerce, fintech type stuff, intellectual capital, AI, There's a number of industries that really, really are growing, and there's others that are age old. And I'd get three, four years under my belt, perhaps even a management qualification, if that's the industry you're interested in. And then I'd look at something. You get companies which have been set up four or five years, and they have the market cap 10 times of Marks and Spencers, which is a British business set up like in the 1890s and so on. We live in a crazy time where this thing, the internet, has brought the whole world to you. You know, very quickly, it reminds me of Steve Jobs. When Steve mm. Jobs had a Nokia, what were those Nokias? Nokia 720 or whatever these Nokia phones were. Remember the old Nokia brick phones? You're probably a bit young to remember them. And he said to his design team, so he had his design team with him as well. He said, we're going to completely revolutionize. This was before the iPhone. 
we're going to completely revolutionize mobile phones in this on earth not just in this country and he had a british designer there who's credited with a lot of the fantastic work that apple did and the british designer said to him right now we go out there for whatever we need in the world you want to buy something a jacket you want to buy a car you want a service of some description you want your shopping you go to the supermarket blah 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 what happens at the moment is mankind goes to the world to try and pick up what mankind wants let's bring the world to mankind through the phone and that's what thinking outside the box is all about yeah it really really is it wasn't just steve jobs it was the team around him that were absolutely amazing that have revolutionized and transformed our world and that way of thinking at that instant moment of ensuring you don't go to the world but the world comes to you through a mobile phone and then the whole concept of an app store and apps and what can't you do on a mobile phone now you can book the hotel you can book your train you can watch the news you can order food you can go to all manner of restaurants literally just online and they come to you you can look your mental health your physical health everything can be done by virtue of this hugely intelligent piece of thinking i have no idea how we got there but anyway <laughs> That's all right. Let's take one more question from the audience and then let's hear your story about 1E. This is an interesting one from Mohsin. Mohsin's uh, firing them out today, isn't he? What are the biggest yeah, errors? Other people. There's loads of other people from my screen where I could so she give other people chances as well. But go on. What are the biggest errors you see in young slash new entrepreneurs? Say that question again. What are the biggest what? What are the biggest errors you see in young... Oh, errors. Errors. Sorry, yeah, errors, yeah. You know, most businesses fail, not because they are not profitable in the medium term, but because they run out of cash in the short term. The sweet swap spot for every private equity company is to work out when the young entrepreneur gets a little too excited. Overstretches is going to be profitable, no doubt, but it's desperate for cash now. And the private mm. equity company parachutes in usually pays far less money than in the long term they should have paid. and takes a decent chunk of equity and that represents a corollary in terms of the risk paradigm from the entrepreneur's perspective because the entrepreneur typically overstretches typically always wants to achieve more than their resources allow and quite often when market circumstances turn like they're having covid is then in trouble so the biggest mm-hmm. error i've seen entrepreneurs is they try to do too many things too quickly in too macroy capacity that would be the first thing and they always need to calm down a little bit the second big thing the entrepreneurs do is they have a poor eye for detail they're very good at doing the deal they're very good at seeing the deal their human skills their interpersonal skills are usually very very proficient refined and very good but when i said earlier that a business doesn't rise or fall just on the entrepreneur's personality it's because after selling stuff you need very good service if your big clients and customers are not being serviced very very well you get a situation whereby they're going to start complaining and they're going to go elsewhere and entrepreneurs are really bad in terms of eye for detail i remember back in the first ethical days i was out there in the first instance doing a lot of selling of financial products but had we not had bash and some of the other people in the back office then we would really have suffered on the front end sales side with people walking away from us because our back office operation wasn't very good and entrepreneurs like me are very slow to realize that that this isn't just about sales 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 you have got to have a very swift slick compliance operation which 
tidies up the admin behind the scenes. The sale is just the beginning of the relationship. The entrepreneur often sees the sale as the end of the relationship because you work so hard to get the sale in. When it's actually just the beginning, the management of that account and the ensuring that the client gets the information whenever they need it for their tax return or whatever, that really is a continuation of that relationship. And entrepreneurs are innately bad at that. So they need to make sure they've got people in their organization who are good at it. No, Let's hear your story about how you transitioned from Deloitte to your first venture into pure entrepreneurship, first ethical one. How did that all come about and how did you go about it? What were the first moves that you made in the first year? How did you start building the team out? All of that stuff. It'd be great to hear that. Some of the stuff is not fit for public consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Some of what's motivated me over the years. That's what I want to know. (laughs) That's the big one. This really is an uncut uh, kind of session, isn't it? Yeah. So after Deloitte, I moved on to kind of like the whole kind of financial advisory sphere where there was clearly a market because IFG didn't exist then, uh, Simply Sherry, and none of these things actually existed. So first ethical was what we were thinking of, but obviously you've got to get the exam. So I worked for a couple of, as we say, structured employers. And then you get to a stage, and I think this is a learning lesson for anybody listening today. How do you go from guaranteed employment income in a company, say a financial services company or whatever, to outright entrepreneurship where not even one pound is guaranteed in your bank every month, but thousands of pounds quite possibly in liabilities you've got to pay out. So how do you go from the security of guarantee on one side to complete insecurity and opportunity on the other side? And when we wrote our Shell Livewire business application for the competition, which, which Alhamdulillah, we had the good fortune of, by the grace of Allah, winning, the phrase I started it off with was this, and I think this epitomizes the dilemma for your listeners. You'll never discover new oceans until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Yeah, You'll never discover new oceans until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. When you're teaching your young child to swim and they're holding on to the side in the swimming pool and you're working so hard to get them to take a bit of a leap of faith. And then once they take that leap of faith, they might be scared once or twice, but then slowly they start swimming. Then they get better. Then they get better. And my kids are far better swimmers than I know is the reality. And herein lies the point. When you have got all of those kind of guaranteed contracts with some of your clients coming in, how do you transition from there across to your own business? Well, number one, non-compete clauses usually are not effective for more than six months. So the most your current employer can stop you from dealing with clients who you have built a relationship with. Let's face it, when we're in the sales industry, in the entrepreneurial industry, even if we're working for somebody, the relationship usually is with us. The product matters, but if we can show the customer that I'm developing a product which is just as good, let's say... Saeed from Savortex, who's probably listening to it, right? Let's say previously he was working. It's a bit of a plug for Savortex. Everybody should look at this. Guinness Book of Records, officially the best hand dryer or the most energy efficient, at least, hand dryer on earth, as I understand it anyway. So he's working for another hand dryer company. He may well in that time have mastered the technology. Now, really, people are dealing with Saeed because of who he is, how quickly he gets back to them when problems occur and so on. 
So now he can just as easily turn around and say, for six months, I might not be able to deal with you, but I'm setting up my own handwriting company, actually. And you trust me, you know me. And that's how accounts tend to move over. And I've had that with bank managers who move from one bank to the other, who said to me, yeah, the services have remained the same. It's just a different bank and so on. So as long as your relationship with customers is very, very good, then you should be able to transition them across to your own business and be able to project your cash flow. Right now, I guaranteed salary of £30,000 a year from my current employer, but I know I'm able to take these contracts across to my own business, which will at least make me 10, 15, 20,000 as a guarantee. And then whilst that money's coming, you know, I'll make more. And my scenario was exactly the same when I left some of the financial advisory companies I was working for and I set up First Ethical. I had a pipeline of maybe 50, 60,000 pounds, but that was enough because I then didn't execute those contracts for the companies I was working with. And I executed them all when I left under my new company, which gave me 50, 60,000 to start with. So there's a calculated judgment call in terms of that runway. Now, if you get it wrong, then you're going to be hungry a few days till you get the sale. And some private equity person like me is going to come in and buy equity from you at a price at which you wish you hadn't sold it to me, right? If you go on the other side of the fence and you leave it too long and you just carry on within that structured business, you may get to a point where you lose the appetite. One of the reasons why I forced myself out of business, and I know it's something you want to come on to, in my late 30s and set up MEND, is because I partly knew the challenge MEND was going to be in life. And I knew that I wouldn't have the appetite for it in my 40s. Hand on heart, would I do MEND again now? No, I wouldn't do it and I couldn't do it. I don't have the energy and knowing what on earth went through in terms of character building and testing, I wouldn't do it in my mid-40s. It just requires Mm -hmm. too much mental energy and emotional strength and psychological belief. And it's just so tough to do it at this age. But I knew at 38 I could do it. And it's a gamble that paid off, basically. And so on. So that leap for entrepreneurs to get out of their structured employment to their own business has got to be at a time when you think you have got enough, at least for six months, seven months, to see you through from an entrepreneurial perspective. And then just make the leap, go discover those new oceans and have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And so you did that, Sofian. So you left your existing employment, you went and set your own thing up. Did you start hiring people straight away? I mean, what were your kind of first moves that you made in the first like month? This is dead interesting because I got a lot wrong. And so I've had to learn from my mistakes. There's two, three things which, again, entrepreneurs need to get right and they will help you immeasurably. Number one, whatever you're selling, initially you will be the only person selling it. So let's take Saeed from Subotex again as an example. To this day, probably nobody can sell his hand dryers better than he can. He's good at selling that man. Oh, I tell you, the best, the best, yeah. So there's nobody better than him at selling his hand dryers. But his time is limited and it's finite. So when I was selling financial services and investments and pensions and ISAs, my time was finite. So the challenge you then have is I'm going to go recruit more people, which is great, right? But one, it costs money to recruit them because they all require some degree of basic salary and remind me to come to the salary versus commission trade-off in a second. So it requires some kind of a basic salary, but you recruit them and you train them By the time you've trained them, will they not run off and do this themselves? So this growth paradigm of a sales business is really, really interesting. 
So what I did is I recruited a whole host of salespeople. At the time, was paying them like 20, 30K, whatever basic salaries, yeah? I know pittance, bro, yeah, compared to what you people earn. But this is 15 years ago, you have to understand. Uh, probably like 30K basic salary, whatever. First of all, the key thing is you have to structure the salary package, in my view anyway, to give your employee just enough give them a comfortable enough living. You don't want people worrying about paying rent at the end of the month. That's not what your business is about. You want to give them enough to ensure their husband, their wife, their kids are living comfortably, their rent is paid, there's enough food on the table, that's fine. But not too much to make them overly comfortable not to get out early and to come home late on the back of selling your product. So you've got to get the structure between the bonus and the commission right. That's the first point. The second point beyond that then is how do you avoid them going off and stealing your own intellectual capital and setting up against you as a competitor? Well, then the commission you pay them has got to be, as time goes on, placed at the right level to ensure that if they really did want to do this themselves, it probably isn't worth the hassle. I.e., they could go off, set up their own business, get their own licensing, certification, their own stock, their own employees. But by the time they've incurred all that cost, Actually, they were better off or just about as well off just working for you. So there comes a break-even point, which is stage two. So stage one of the employee's evolution is give him a basic salary, keep him hungry by virtue of a decent bonus, give him enough to keep his wife, stroke, husband, kids happy, and so on. That's stage one with the employee. Stage two then pretty much is ensure that you've incentivized them enough to not go off and set up on their own if they are good enough. If they're not good enough, you can keep on on a lower commission package and so on, because quite frankly, they're not good enough. They're not going to leave your business and you're not getting the value out of them. If you're getting the value out of them, structure the bonus to a level at which it doesn't make sense for them to leave. Stage three is they are really good. right? And I've had a few of these people over the years who are excellent. Then you have to think seriously about making them equity owners in the business and directors. So effectively, you get to a point where... They are fixtures and fittings as far as your business is concerned. They take off a whole area of responsibility from you, like the entire servicing side to the business, the technical side to the business, all the things the entrepreneur is not very good at, which usually tend to be everything other than producing the tech spec of the product and the servicing of existing clients. The entrepreneur is very good at the talking, doing the deals, signing the deals, solving the problems, and so on. So the areas you're not very good at Don't waste your time doing them. Over the years, identify who's very good at them, give them a share of the business, give them directorship, and have them as part of your board. So that's a three-tier logical management system for a business. As long as you do that, you won't just be nurturing talent into the company, you'll be locking it in for life, and so on. That makes sense. I suppose a lot of that advice is really applicable for all sorts of businesses, but particularly for the sales kind of focused business. What would you say were the biggest challenges that you faced in the early months and like the biggest like mistakes that perhaps you might have made as well in the early months? Biggest challenges. This is your classic interview question, isn't it? This is obviously not prescriptive. I think some of the biggest challenges we faced was or were even selling too quickly without having the servicing operation in place. I think we got stung in some of our earlier companies with complaints, quite rightly, from clients because we hadn't got the servicing in place because our understanding of what constitutes success ended at the end of the sale. Whereas, as I say, that's just the beginning of the relationship. 
there's much, much more both you and your client can get from each other if you understand the sale and the handshake just as the beginning of the relationship. So we got a lot wrong from a servicing perspective. The other massive challenge was getting the right people on board. Early on in life, when you recruit, you're tempted to meet somebody in an interview. They sell you a good line and you recruit them. You spend a number of months training them. They come to you with meetings and so on. And then eventually you realize this person cannot sell on their own. And this person really lacks the requisite skill to manage key accounts and so on and hasn't got the dedication. As time goes on as an entrepreneur, your ability to quote unquote smell BS gets really, really good. Your antenna gets mm -hmm. pretty fine. But none of us are born with that ability to do that very, very quickly. It's funny, sometimes I'm interviewing with MEND and I'm there with fellow members of the MEND board and so on. And within the first three minutes, I've worked out whether we want this candidate in the organization, three, four, five minutes. And it's not going to change in my head because for years in business, I've met people and I've been reading their minds and I've been thinking through their thought process and so on. And I've kind of, to the best of whatever ability, alhamdulillah, worked out who's a BSer and who can kind of just talk the talk and who can walk the walk. And so I get very bored very, very quickly. And it annoys the fellow directors and the fellow people on the board that he gets frustrated so quickly, he gets bored so quickly. But that's because I make my decision so quickly. I'll tell you something interesting just on this point. The difference between an entrepreneur and someone who's not an entrepreneur, really fascinating. And I only learned this in life later on. Entrepreneurs usually very quickly, instinctively make a judgment call on something. They'll look at a whole host of factors. At speed, they'll compute things. And they will know whether or not the next half an hour with this person is worth it to make any money out of them or to grow the business or to benefit them or us in some way, shape or form. Because within the first three, four minutes of talking to that person, there are certain mental triggers in their brain, mental triggers in their brain, which make themselves obvious to you. Like if somebody volunteers information to you, which seems odd, very quickly in a conversation, without the trust having been established between the pair of you, you automatically start questioning their judgment and whether they have a propensity and a susceptibility to make rash decisions. Mm -hmm. If somebody else refuses to volunteer really obvious information, which there's no reason why they should be holding back, you automatically got either get a little suspicious or a little concerned about their lack of interpersonal skills. There are certain human triggers in the brain that manifest themselves in the personality of the individual, which early on we don't pick up as entrepreneurs. But as time goes on, we learn to pick up very, very quickly. It's reality. So the entrepreneur's instinctive judgment, computing all the factors dealing with people, is normally far quicker and sharper than the average person. But when the entrepreneur makes a blunder, it tends to be far bigger than the average person as well. That's really fascinating. Well, There's a lot more things I think I'd like to ask you about this, but I think we should probably move on and talk a little bit about how, as you started growing this business, when I saw it, one year was, I think, 50 plus people, a few different floors. This was after you'd left. And I expect that they've under grown further since. How do you deal with that transition from being a really important person in the machine to someone that is much more on the kind of management level? And also, how do you deal with difficult people in your business? Like, I'm sure at that point, it's a lot about people management. So how do you deal with difficult people? 
Yeah. Do you mind if I just quickly touch on the three or four key elements of what makes a successful business? Because then what you're, saying, yeah, what you're saying actually comes straight after that. I think for any young entrepreneurs, and I'm getting countless WhatsApp messages at the moment because I've got it open on the side on the screen as well. So that's good. Alhamdulillah from uh, young entrepreneurs watching this. There's a few things I think are absolutely essential as far as your, your mix is concerned to get right. And I think if you get these right, then inshallah, you're going to do very well. So anyone watching now, thinking of setting up a business, then think of the following. And I'll try and make it quick because I'm conscious you've got lots of different questions. One really has got to be, is there a market for your product? Even before you think of creating a product. The number of people who've created a product and there was no market for it, yeah? It's hilarious. Is there a market for your product? Yes, there is brilliant. And a market doesn't necessarily just mean, is there a complete void? Maybe you'll do something better. For example, what Dyson did with the vacuum cleaner, we used to always call it the Hoover because Hoover dominated the industry as much as it did. And then Dyson comes along and it's a different story altogether. In Dyson's case, it's not just a product where there's no product in the industry. It's a better product than what existed previously. Before Google conquered the search engine space, you had Lycos, Infoseek, all kinds of weird search engines, but Google just did it better and it was more convenient. These things all make a difference. So number one, is there no product in the industry or one not as good as what you can come up with? If that kind of a market exists, go in. Two, concentrate on your product like mad. Three, codify your sales pitch into quality visual language, which quickly tells a story. Remember back in the first ethical days, in 2003, first ethical, alhamdulillah, won UK's fastest growing company. That was only two years after we'd set it up. And two of the reasons why it did that was the visual language we used on PowerPoint was very, very powerful compared to what was prevalent at the time. And two, you have to make a story easy for your listener to hear. Your life might be financial products. Your life might be cars. Your life might be properties. Your life might be flowers. Your life might be hairdryers. But it's not mine when I'm buying them from you. And because it's not mine when I'm buying them from you, sell me a simple story of why I need your product, why your product is likely to be the best on the market, and transparency over any shortcomings it has. And if I've got the money and I need it, I'm likely to buy it from you. So the ability to sell a story in sales, well, coupled with the right visual language, be it a PowerPoint presentation or a simple video or a brochure or whatever, don't overcomplicate it. Those are such key ingredients to success. They really, really are. And then on top of that, leverage of once of every relationship. I'll tell you something, in the 1E days, and that was the business where we really made money more so than First Ethical, alhamdulillah, right? I would spend two days trying to get through cold calling accountants. And very few would give a young lad who didn't have, a, at the time, a large established company or whatever, the time of day on the phone. After mm. two days of countless calls, I would get through to two accountants or three accountants. And I would plead with them to let me through their front door so I could talk to them about our tax solutions and planning ideas. But from that one accountant, one, whatever went wrong at whatever hour of the day, I would be ready to help their client resolve any issues transaction-wise with their uh, tax solution or wealth management or whatever. Two, I would pester that accountant to open doors for me. A hundred people could call me today, call my office tomorrow, whatever, and I would ignore the calls. But if Ibrahim texts me, somebody I know and trust, and says, so 
you really got to meet this person like you already have done with some of the projects our trusts have invested in. Then because it's you, you're already knocking on an open door, which by definition means the person hassling you is knocking on an open door. And that's why when I was hassling accountants to get me in front of their clients to sell them planning ideas, yeah. I was knocking on the open door. So don't underestimate the value of the introducer. We spend years and millions in business paying for trust by paying the accountant or whoever is the intermediary to your end client a percentage of the income you make. It is not money lost. It is trust bought. Yeah. A lot of what you're saying chimes true with me as someone who is about two and a half months in having made the leap. So, yeah, I encourage all listeners to make a real kind of close note of that because that's so, so true. So, Fian, I wanted to talk to you about perhaps let's have a quick look through the questions. If there's any others about business that might be interesting. And then I think we should talk about how you left business and go into MEND. 